welcome to High Action. I'm Perry Smith. I'm Will Brom. I'm John Story, and together we're the New West Guitar Group. On today's episode of High Action, we're going to feature the fantastic Mimi Fox. A special thanks to our Patreon members and our sponsors who make this podcast possible. For more information on High Action and how you can get involved, please visit www.newwestguitar.com slash high action. All right. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, welcome to High Action. This is episode seven. I'm joined with my brothers, John Story and Will Brom of the New West Guitar Group, and we are so excited that you are here with us. Today's episode features the wonderful guitarist Mimi Fox. She is really a fantastic, terrific player, wonderful person, based in the Bay Area. And uh, John, I wanted to kind of throw this to you and ask you a question here, because one of the really wonderful things about being a guitar player is we've gotten to know so many people in different regions of the country, uh, whether that's someone like Mimi Fox or Bruce Foreman based around the Bay Area, or Dan Balmer based up in Portland, um, obviously tons of people on the East Coast. So it's kind of interesting to talk to someone like Mimi who has such a history in the Bay Area. Uh, what do you think that kind of represents about the Bay Area? How diverse that scene is mm-hmm. for how small it is. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. it's not that big of a jazz scene. And for that matter, LA isn't really either. I mean, mm-hmm. compared to New York or even Europe, you know, it's, it's a pretty tight scene. And yeah, I'm, I'm always amazed at how the Bay has had such a variety of musicians that that area has attracted. I think she's really emblematic of a West Coast musician because she's somebody who has roots elsewhere and came here for other opportunities. She isn't from here originally, as our listeners will find out. Mm-hmm. And um, she's spent a lot of time on the road. Uh, I would say a lot of West Coast jazz musicians in the LA Bay Area, I, I think they spend a significant amount of time on the road promoting their own projects because our scenes where we, where we're living are so small. So we're always going out and about. And so it's, it was cool hearing her talk about the evolution of her career and how all of us kind of met her. I mean, I met her when, as the listeners will find out when I, when she had visited Oregon when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so it was, it was great to hear her talk about that and that takeaway again, in the Bay area, it's such a, it's a very diverse scene and she's um, I think she's really representative of, of what that scene is about up there. Sure. Yeah. And she talked about it a little bit, like especially the heyday of the sort of late eighties, nineties in the Bay area. We've heard that from Bay area bass guitarists as well before people like Bruce Foreman, just kind of how open the scene was and how you could go from playing in kind of different styles and different genres a little bit easier than you could in a place like New York, let's say. Uh, But yeah, she's really developed a terrific career over so many years. And I was able to study with her and get to know her a little bit in high school. So it was real special to have her on the podcast. Um, Let me just throw it to you, Will, and, Mm. and mention the thing that really blew our minds when she dropped this story about Joe Pass during the interview. And don't give too much away for the listeners, but... How cool was it to get a little insight to this experience she had with uh, the great Joe Pass? Well, I think it would be any of our dreams to have a, a lesson with Joe Pass and and just hear him give some feedback. Um, she even the way she like imitated his voice it just gave us that that human personal glimpse of the music legend that we know. 
because we didn't grow up in that in that same era necessarily. So there is definitely a, a very cool Joe Pass story, but I'm not going to give it away. Thank you for that. And <laughs> yes, it is so important. I'm sure our listeners will appreciate just having the ability to talk with folks that can connect us to the heroes of our instrument and the heroes of this music. You know, that's a really important lineage and tradition to kind of maintain. And we're trying to do that here on High Action. So without further ado, please enjoy episode seven with the great Mimi Fox. Ah, what's up? Looks like I've got three amigos. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, you definitely Trace. do. Thank you. Tres amigos. It's, it's so great to see you. It's been way too long. Yeah, it's been like a, maybe a century or so. Yeah, <laughs> one of those, something like that. Probably a, probably a decade, at least, unfortunately. But Oh, no, it's, it's way more than a decade. Well, I, did we see each other after you came for the lesson um, in Oakland? We were just talking about that. We thought that we ran into you at like an old Healdsburg Guitar Festival or something like that. Oh, wow. You know, um, mid-2000. Yeah, I remember playing at that, but that, yeah, that's got to be at least 10 or 12. No, that's... That's got to be like 15 years ago, at yeah. least. Yeah. yeah. Well, excited to talk about your album, um, This Bird Still Flies. I'd love to play a clip off of that or two. I also sure. have a couple clips ready to play from some of your other previous recordings. Uh, would cool. you mind if we featured some other music as well during oh, the podcast? Absolutely. You know, okay. um, that's the great thing about getting older. You got so much shit out there for better or for worse. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So. definitely for better. Definitely for better. First of all, Mimi, let me officially welcome you to the High Action Podcast. It's really a pleasure to get a chance to speak with you. Uh, I grew up in the Bay Area where I think you still currently live, and I was fortunate enough to get a chance to study with you, whether it was the Jazz Masters Workshop or a private lesson uh, at your home in the East Bay. So thank you for always being so kind to me. It's really special that you're here, and we get a chance to talk about your, your artistry and your career. Thank you so much, Perry. It's great to be with you, and... Uh... I have a lot of respect for all of you guys. I think that, uh, you know, you're all wonderful players. And so for some reason, we all share this strange passion for this. Uh, well, I guess it's not really that strange, but this sort of undying passion, a maniacal obsession with this instrument. And I'm just so glad to spend this time with you because I know that uh, I know that all of you guys get it. You get that uh, what it means all the time, all the years you spend you know, woodshedding and then just what it means, what it what it means to try to find your own voice and to try to, you know, really become an artist, take it from the level of being a great guitar player to finding what it means to be an artist. And it's a, you know, it's a lifelong, you know, search for all of us, I think. It's incredible. And uh, to dedicate your life to something like playing the guitar and, and being an artist on top of that is is something that it bonds us. And it's a, it's a really in, incredible Thing to devote your life to and yeah you've done it so well over so many years and you know on this podcast we've been overwhelmed to get a chance to speak with guitarists like you 
who have had wonderful, illustrious, long careers. And so it's really a pleasure for us to get some insight into everything that's that's gone on. And uh, on this podcast, we, we like to s- kind of start out by trying to get to know the player behind the instrument a little bit. Sure. And I was as I was doing some research reading up, I was reminded that you were born in New York City, where I, I currently live in right. Brooklyn. And uh, where are you? Are you are you in Brooklyn or are you in this are you in Manhattan? In Brooklyn. Yeah. I started out I'm living good. I knew it. I knew you were gonna tell me Brooklyn. <laughs> I started out living in Alphabet City in the East Village and then I've lived all over the uh, Tri-City area at, at this point. Uh, but you came up in New York City. You were born in New York City, which must have been an amazing place to, to grow up. One of the things that I find interesting uh, is that you started out on drums. If I remember correctly, you still play drums. Um, I do, Perry. Yeah, I mean, I have a set. I actually have a set in my living room, which I still kick around on. And I have like I use it to work out grooves. If uh, like um, For a long time, I've really been obsessed with odd meter grooves. And so mm-hmm. in order to communicate with a bass player and drummer that I work with, or a horn player, whatever. Um, I like to be able to really feel out what's going on. And I think having, you know, just having that background has been giving me a lot of confidence as a player because, you know, as Duke Ellington said, it don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. And I think if you have really solid time, you're able to take chances, you know. And I also think it's more, you know, sort of interesting for the drummers that I work with you know, because they know that I might do some things that are rhythmically a little twisty. And I think that that's kind of a cool thing and maybe, um, you know, is inspiring for them just as all the stuff they're doing is wildly inspiring for me. Yeah, absolutely. And I I remember you talking about this early on when I met you and, you know, this notion of, oh, it's really important to play drums, especially if you're a guitar player, it can really help. And that stuck with me. It's something that I've able to do uh, I've got a drum set right right now it's not not set up for certain reasons but I'm able to you know spend some time working out some stuff on that and I feel like it really translates well to the guitar and I can hear that in your playing as well like a solid sense of the time uh, and a solid way of articulating the time certainly very present on the on the new album uh, this bird still flies I'm really excited to talk a little bit about that but before we get into that one thing that I think we have some common ground on is you talk about right out of high school, you hit the road and you were touring and you've been a road warrior pretty much ever since. And I imagine early on, and it was similar for us, we're out on the road on tours that are kind of on a shoestring budget, you know, very grassroots. Uh, we know what that was like. It was sort of the best of times for us in a lot of ways. You know, what were some of those early tours like for you coming out right out of high school? Yeah, well, um, initially I was playing, I played with a funk band for a while when I was 17. And actually I had a fake ID. At that point I was living <laughs> with my dad in Connecticut. And yeah, I needed a fake ID. It said I was 21 to get into the clubs to play at that, at that point. And it sort of reminds me of that Bob Dylan song, I was so much older than I'm younger than that now. Because <laughs> I had this sort of attitude that people thought I was older than I was. So yeah. I was sneaking around. Well, so I played with the funk band, and we didn't do too much touring. We, we played sort of, you know, some stuff in New York, up New England, different things. But, you know, then I played with some bands that were less than exciting. Uh, pop bands, top 40 bands, uh, doing different things, you know, like, uh, six, seven nights a week, four sets a night. And at that point, it was the uh, late 70s. And the, the music, it, unless it was Stevie Wonder, it, it wasn't 
it wasn't necessarily all that. I mean, right, right. <laughs> let's just put it that way. The music was was not always happening, but you know, I'm very grateful to it because I learned a million songs, and mm-hmm. you know, it it really. I think anytime you have an experience where you're playing that much, and just the the physical time on my instrument, I think was really valuable. Even if oh, yeah. some, you know, we're playing the same songs that are getting requested, but you know, it was still there was some other good stuff happening then. I had some great experiences. I remember once some guy came up and he said, do you guys know 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover, the Paul Simon tune? And nobody in the band knew it, but I knew it. Yeah. So, And I'm not a very good singer, but I played it and sang it. And afterwards, the guy gave me like a $100 tip, which in yeah. like 1979 is a lot of money. Yeah. And the guys in the band were like, you know, after the gig, they're like, Mimi, are you going to split the tip? And I'm like, no way. You guys, <laughs> you guys didn't play on it. I'm the only one that knew it, and I had to sing it. It's like, forget it. There you go. That's so, good. You guys you know, stand up. Again, these, these are just all part. I, I think that, I, I think it's really rare to discover jazz musicians that actually only play jazz, you know. And I'm very yeah. grateful for the other styles that I've played because I feel like it in, has enriched me as an mm-hmm. artist. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, now, obviously, I can be a lot more selective about the gigs that I choose mm-hmm. um, and who I play with. And I, you know, I've been very fortunate to work with some extraordinary you know artists over yeah. the years you know i'm I, everything that i've done has I, I just feel like it all goes it sort of is like grist for the mill and it's all filtered into this pot yeah of things that i can draw from you mm-hmm. know well i i you know you're preaching to the choir i think on this we all feel like having that experience when you're young like really solid working experience where you're playing four or five hours in a night and building your stamina as a guitar player and your knowledge of different songs and styles that can only benefit you as you hone your career as an artist later on. And, you know, speaking of that, you really kind of burst onto the scene from what my research tells me, kind of in the 90s or so with some records you were doing on Monarch. Yeah. You had settled in the the Bay Area at that time, is that correct? Yeah, the Monarch Records uh, was actually started uh, by two brothers who were uh, venture capitalists and uh, very Bay Area. And they had been uh, trombone players in like, high school and college and okay. really sweet guys and they started the label and they brought on board um Marilee Trost who became a good friend of mine and she had been at Concord Records for many years work- mm-hmm. working with Carl Jefferson mm-hmm. and she had been a concert promoter publicist and she functioned sort of as s- still doing some publicity for Monarch but also as an A&R person and a manager I was working with at the time, this is, you know, this was the days, gave, gave Merrily a cassette tape yep. of, a, of a live show that had been recorded at Yoshi's uh, with my uh, quintet. And, uh, and she called up my manager and said, wow, this is some fun stuff. Well, we'd like to, you know, we'd like to record it. Um, but it was trippy because Monarch wanted you to record all direct to two track. There was no overdubbing, no nothing. So you had to nail everything. It was kind of like... Yeah. They wanted to have that tension of artists being in the studio with no safety net, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that was an interesting experience. I, I uh, you know, like we could do another take of a tune, but they insisted that there be no, you know, even if you had a great take and maybe the last figure, you know, your, your hand slips off by one second or one note is ghosted. Right. And you, you know you could just punch it in like, boom. But they, they didn't want to do that. So I was, I was like, that's cool. Yeah. yeah, whatever. I I sort of worked with it, but that was an interesting experience for me. I did a few, I did a few um, recordings with them. One of them 
you know, I got to work with Joey DeFrancesco, which is when I met him. Yeah. And then years later, he called me for some shows with him, which was really an honor and really cool. Is that the album Kicks? Yeah, that's the album Kicks. Right. Yeah. yeah I'm familiar with that one. I, I remember your solo on the his opening track is Cherokee, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And yeah. You burned in solo on that. It was oh, really thank cool. You. Well, Joey really lit a fire under my butt because he, I mean, yeah, there's just nothing you can say about Joey other than he's in sort of his own. Uh, he's like on a planet of his yeah. own, you know, amazing. Yeah. Because like I had some tricky tunes. As a matter of fact, I had a piece called East Coast Attitude. Right. Um, and I remember teaching it to Joey. This is when we did some shows because he said, Mimi said, I know you're a composer. I'd like to do some of your tunes, you know, if you want to share them with me. And this was a this is a tricky piece, you know, really complicated head, a lot of weird rhythm hits. Joey didn't read. So he said, just play it for me slowly. I played it for him slowly one time. Then he said, okay, play it one more time a little faster, and I did. And he starts to play along, and he almost had the entire thing just by ear. By the second time, he had a few notes, and then he said, okay, uh, one more time at that tempo. And uh, by the the fourth or fifth time, he's like, okay, play it up to tempo. I mean, I was just blown away, and it, he, yeah. he nailed it. He nailed it. There's something that, you know. He's a freak. Got, yeah, it was just it was just so trippy to me, but it just you know it it sort of reinforces what I talk to all my conservatory students about now. Where they're like, I want I got to work on my chops. I got to work on my chops, and I'm like, man, the only chops you need to work on are these ones, right? Because ultimately, you know, ultimately the technique will fail you. There will always be a time where, for whatever reasons, we the technique will fail. Mm. And but if these are solid. You're going to be okay. You can adapt. Yeah. You know? Yeah, definitely good advice. During this time, it must have been exciting for you. You're recording records, working with people like Joey D. You're in the Bay Area and having grown up in the Bay Area and, and known Bruce a little bit and some other cats, it seems like that might have been a really wonderful time in the Bay Area, sort of the 90s or so. Uh, yeah. It seemed like there was a cool scene happening in the Bay Area for local jazz musicians that were touring all over. You know, I was just a kid still at that point, kind of caught the tail end of places like Pearls with Vince Ladiano and meeting Bruce there and Peter Barche right. and Harvey Weinapple and yourself and others. And, you know, but this was later in the 90s. So what was the scene like for you in the Bay Area in, in those sort of mid to early 90s? Was it thriving like I've heard? It really was. It was a really... Um and and it wasn't just the straight ahead jazz scene. The Latin jazz scene was sort of exploding with John Santos. There, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. there were just so many uh, in Omar Sosa. There were so many great players, uh, and so these two communities were both sometimes come together for things, sometimes in their own <laughs> you know own festivals or own special concerts. But it was really cool, you know. And there was you know it was Joe Henderson, Bobby Hutcherson, right. uh, just a lot of great artists. So it was um, it was pretty cool. And yeah, I ultimately met you through uh, the Jazz Masters Workshop, which was a wonderful thing. I, if I remember correctly, you were doing that. Uh, Are you talking about the one down in, do you mean the Jazz Guitar Intensive or the Masters Workshop down in Santa Cruz? Uh, it might have been, I, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, actually, it might have been Jazz Camp West. Oh, okay, okay. One yeah. way or another, I came across you, and I was so uh, enamored and blown away by your playing. I mean, you had such control over the instrument, such a warm, clean tone, you know, really swinging ideas, and, and you were kind enough to kind of show me the way a little bit uh, back well, then. Well, as, as I recall, Perry, that's, you're being humble, because as I remember when you came for the lesson, and, uh, <laughs> you know, people can't see this on the podcast, but I'm being <laughs> ironic uh, about that 
you know, you're already great. You were already wow. sounding like you were totally, you had so much together. It was just, it was sort of, um, I was like, well, I don't know what I'm going to talk to this guy about. I could talk to him about life and yeah. the pursuit of happiness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is important. As we know, career as a jazz guitar player, That those two things are not easy to always come by. And Well, that's uh, true. That's true. You know, but I think, you know, Perry, I would be remiss if I didn't say that one of the biggest things that happened also during that time for me is that I met Joe Pass and uh, approached him after a gig. And he was kind enough to give me a lesson at his hotel room in San Francisco the next day. Mm -hmm. And that was a tra absolutely transformative experience for me. Yeah, I hear that lineage in your playing, for sure. And Thank you. Can you talk a little bit about that meeting that you had with them? I mean, we're always enamored to hear stories from people oh, that connect us to the greats. it was just extraordinary. Well, what happened is um, I was with a friend, and he was actually playing, doing a concert with Joe Williams, the, the incredible vocalist mm -hmm, at, mm -hmm. um, I want to say, um, the Herbst Theater in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And after the show, my friend, a good friend that I was with, she said to me at the time, she said, Mimi, now is your time. Go up and introduce yourself. Go up and say something. It's like, no, I... And at that time, I felt, you know, I was very shy. I felt awkward, you know, the way we all do and, and kind oh, yeah. of doofy. And I just thought, oh, I, I can't do this. And she practically pushed me up. There was a line. He was signing CDs and talking to people. And I so I finally got up there and I got up my nerve and I said, oh, hi, Joe. My name's Mimi Fox. You know, I was all I sort of blurted everything out. I was all nervous. And I said, you know, I, I've been transcribing a lot of your stuff, and I've studied some with Bruce Foreman. And he goes, well, if you've been studying with Bruce, what do you need me for? He was very sort of <laughs> off-putting. And then I kept talking to him, and I said, well, I want to work. I've been working on solo guitar stuff, and I know you could help me, and I wondered if I could. And he says, all right, all right. He said, come to my hotel room the next day. And he was staying at the Inn of the Opera in San Francisco. So... I got there and he said, be there at 10 o'clock sharp. So, of course, I was there at like 5 or 10 of 10, ready. I had a really nice silk blouse on. Um, and I, I, you know, I had my guitar, I had all my questions. I had some of his solos that I had transcribed note for note that I wanted to ask him about. I get there and he opens the door. He's in his pajamas and his slippers and he's already smoking a cigar. And so I come in and he says, sit down. And he's, you know, he's like got a little waiting area. It's a nice hotel room. And it's, it's got like a little sofa and waiting area and stuff, you know, or whatever you want to call it, a little parlor room kind yeah. of thing. And I can barely breathe because of the cigar. So oh I'm trying God. to, <clears throat> you know, <laughs> into this, the smoke uh, inhalation is killing me. But I you sit down and he goes, so you want to work on your solo guitar stuff? I said, yeah. And he goes, well, he just barked at me. It was like a drill starts. He goes, play something. And so I said, Okay. And so I get out my guitar and I played a piece. And then he goes, he's still smoking a cigar and he goes, play something else. So I, he made me play. He kept barking at me. I played like five or six solo pieces. Wow. I had, I'm not a person that sweats a lot. Oh yeah. But I'm sure I'm you were sweating nervous. profusely, like just dripping yeah. off of me in my new silk blouse. In those days I didn't have a lot of money. So I thought, shit, if I fuck up this blouse, I'm not going to have this for this gig I have, you know, tomorrow night. Shit. And I'm just, it's like the sweat's pouring off of me. But finally, thank God for me, puts the cigar in the ashtray and he puts it out. And it's like, oh my God, thank God. And then he goes, you know, Mimi? And I hadn't heard anyone call me Mimi since my relatives back in New York. Yeah. He goes, you know, Mimi, you play really well. You play really <laughs> well. And then he goes, I don't like you using that 6-9 that chord. 
That cord was around before I was born. I know you're a smart girl. You're more creative than that. And then he said, and you missed the E flat note when you were doing this run in night and day. You missed the E flat. And I said, yeah, I did miss the E flat. He said, yeah, okay. He said, but you know, he said, you, you wouldn't believe the schmucks that come to see me that can't play their way through a 12-bar blues. He said, I'm so relieved you're here. He puts out his cigar. So, And then he just... I mean, I could go on and on and on, but I mean, what a great it, was story. An, it was an incredible experience. I, I remember saying to him, it was on his solo from Night and Day, and I said, Joe, I have a question about your fingering here. How are you navigating this passage? And, and he said something which is like so funny to me now is that I always make my students laugh. It's like the Holy Grail. He goes, he says, well, Mimi, I'll tell you, when I'm moving up the neck, I use my pinky. And when I'm moving down the neck, I use my index finger. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was so funny. And you, and again, just the way Joe said it, Mimi, it, it yeah. was just, it was hysterical, you know. And then, you know, he said, look, if you want to work on solo guitar, what you should be doing is listening to string quartets, mm. which was a great thing. Because he said to me, he said, look, the, the two low strings, the E and the A are like the cello the mid-range like the viola you know d and g and then the high strings like the violins and he said listen to string quartets listen to what's going on and he talked to me about classical guitar and what i had played because i had studied that in new york for a few mm. years and so mm. we talked about that repertoire and then he said you know he said a few things to me that i'll just never forget oh one is that he said he said you know you have a lot of fire in the belly he said and don't let anybody take that away from you yeah and i said I said, okay. And then he said something that was remarkable. I mean, it was remarkable to me at the time. I found myself having to say it to students over the years myself now. But he said, you know, he said, Mimi, I think, well, Mimi, Mimi, I think you're practicing too much, he said. And I said, why? And he said, because you're 31 years old. And I was like 31 at that time. He said, you're 31 years old and you're coming to me and you're already burnt out. He said, you shouldn't be burnt out. I want, you should still love this music. He said, you got that fire. You got that passion. He said, so take a break. Listen to some Mozart. Listen to this. Listen to this. Take a break from it and take a break from jazz. So I remember that that really, really struck me, really struck me. And oh, yeah. so I, I remember I had a gig, I don't know, a few weeks after this with uh, Perry. You might remember John Watala, a wonderful bass player yeah. in the Bay Area. Yeah. And uh, he used to play, he played some at Pearls with uh, Bruce. And anyway, John and I had this duo gig. And uh, after the gig, we were packing up and just a restaurant gig in the city. And I remember him saying to me, you know, we're packing. He said, Mimi, you're sounding really, really good these days. What have you been doing? And I said, you know, John, I'm just not practicing. And he thought that was really funny. He goes, oh, ha, 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 you're not practicing. But I said, no, man, it's really true. I am not practicing. I'm I've just I've, I've just taken these three weeks off. I'm listening and I'm playing, but I'm not actually doing all the woodshedding and practicing and stuff that I had been doing. And he said, "Well, you should keep not practicing. It's working out well." I said, "Yeah, that's keep great." That in mind. So, and then you know, I mean, I think what was the nicest thing that happened with Joe is that he he was just so sweet, uh, you know. As much as you know, he could be kind of gruff, but mm -hmm. afterwards, you know, he's like. Um, you know, why are you out in the Bay Area? You should move to New York. I said, I'm from New York. I said, I had to get away from my family. He said, oh, I could understand that. <laughs> and then he goes, he goes um, oh, that's what he said. He said, you have to learn how to harness that fire and intensity so you don't burn yourself out. Yeah. And that was also a really, a totally valuable, you know, thing that he said to me.
you know, and, and it applies to modern day guitar players as well. You know, I think people are still struggling with those concepts. I mean, I've moved to New York, I've been here for 10 years and that's, this place is kind of like overdrive, you know, and if you're not careful, you can burn yes. yourself out and do it again and again and again. It's really important advice and it's just amazing that you have stories from the well, you know, from Joe Pass to share with us. Uh, just moving along here a little bit, uh, I wanted to feature an album of yours that I've always enjoyed, something that you did in 2006 called uh, Perpetually Hip. Uh, it's an all speaking of New York. It's an it's an all star cast of cats from New York here. Uh, I think it, Xavier Davis, the pianist, Harvey S on bass, and uh, Billy Hart on drums. Yeah, yeah. So here is perpetually hip from Mimi Fox from two thousand six. <laughs> Sounds so good. I always love the blues you put in your playing. I wanted to mention that earlier. It's such a great, tasteful way of soloing. Um, so that that's a great record, great track. Can you talk a little bit about that experience hanging with those guys and getting to play with guys like Billy Hart? I mean, it's a, yeah, it's, it's a whole it other was, thing. Yeah, it was uh, a wonderful experience. What was going on at that time is that I had been playing with Harvey S. a lot. Um, when I was in New York, uh, Harvey was generally my first call bass player when I had shows uh, in in the city, mm. and so um, and then we also were. Uh, Harvey came when I played at um, the. Um, there was a guitar festival uh, that I played at in Wales, and Harvey ended up coming. Um, he had some shows in Europe, and so he ended up being able to meet me in Wales. So then we started playing a ton, and when he was out here. Uh, here meaning the Bay Area, he would call me if he had shows out there. So we got to be really tight. 
And uh, we were doing a lot of playing together. And when I was getting ready to do, this was actually my second um, recording for Favored Nations. Um, right, Steve Vai's label. Which yeah. was Steve Vai's label. And Harvey suggested Xavier. I was looking for a piano player. And he said he'd been working with Xavier a lot and thought I would really dig his playing, knew yeah. I would dig his playing. And then he mentioned Billy Hart. And, you know, being the drums being my second instrument, of course, I knew Billy and I was familiar with his playing. Uh, but I didn't know know him, and so Harvey was able to set that up. You know, I think I have, I don't know, I have five or six originals on that recording, on, on, on that uh, perpetual hip recording, but just to set the record straight, in, in case people don't know, um, the title, Perpetually Hip, it's a song I wrote for a friend of mine. Okay. The woman that I mentioned who was like a surrogate mom to me, Marilee Trost, who signed me to Monarch Records. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Marilee also worked for years with Marion McPartland, Stan Getz, um, uh, Dave Brubeck was personal friends with the family and was publicist and worked just, you know, and was a concert promoter. She did so many things, but she also happened to be a wonderful surrogate mom to me. So we were having lunch one day and she was using all these really cool expressions. And I said, you know, Marilee, you're so hip. You're just perpetually hip. <laughs> and as soon as I said it, we both looked at each other and she said, I know what you're thinking. Means you're thinking it's a good song title. And I was like, yeah, it kind of is. And um, and for me as a Jewish person, rather than tragically hip, which would, which sort of fits <laughs> in with all of the sorrow of my people over the millennial, you know, the millennium, this way perpetually hip kind of is kind of cool. But people think, oh, it's self-aggrandizing. Totally not. It it was written for my friend Marilee. Well, I happen to think you're perpetually hip. So kind of in regards to that, I, I wanted to kind of touch on this subject and might be a, a rather of a loaded subject here but i you know really feel like you're a bona fide trailblazer in this industry that is you know chock full of men and perhaps these days it's more common to see young women picking up jazz guitar and getting into it i've had a few students out here in uh new york young women that are getting into playing jazz it's wonderful to see i've been able to point them to some of your recordings and some of your videos to help inspire them i know john has essentially done the same thing with some of his students so I imagine that it was a little bit more difficult for you coming up than it might be for some young women nowadays. But I hope that you take a lot of gratification in just knowing that you've helped pave the way for some other people and, and how important and crucial that role is. Do you, do you feel that? Do you, do you feel that sense of gratification You know, I have that? had some young women come up to me over the years at shows, you know, after shows and mention that uh, to me. Um, uh, probably the, one of the sweetest things that happened um, to me was um, about 10 years ago, I did a, I did a, was on a recording and toured with um, Patty Larkin, Muriel Anderson, Sharon Isbin, um, Rory Block, a lot of, it was called La Guitarra, and it was right, featuring yeah. all women guitarists in different genres. And so yeah. obviously I was representing the jazz thing, and we toured, everybody played solo, and then we'd come together at the end and do some barn burners, you know, like a great guitarist kind right, of thing. Right, yeah. Either, when we were in Boston one night, um, after the show, uh, I think it was at the Regatta Bar. And place was it was it was so much fun. It was a really fun gig. I think at that show, I think Khaki King was on the gig, and Khaki and I really. I don't know if you got if you know Khaki. I don't know if she's still in New York. I don't know her personally. No, she's a tri she's a trip. But anyway, we we were all hanging out, and these two young sisters, one was 13 and one was 11, came up to me and they had a CD and they said, Mimi, will you sign the CD? And I said, of course, I'd be happy to. And I said, how are you doing? And they said, 
where we're really happy tonight because you're like our new hero. And I thought to myself, okay, I could die now. They were just so cute. And I said, and their band was named something like Kill Baby Kill or something. And it was just crazy. So I figured it was like a maybe punk or, you know, kind of metal. I wasn't sure what it was, but they gave me a copy of their, it was like a, a EP kind of thing, whatever. It was like three songs or something that they had recorded. And yeah. so um, that was very, that was very touching to me, but yeah, I mean, it was definitely harder in the old days. Um, it, was, it was it was a pretty intense environment to be going to jam sessions too, but you know, as I look back on my life, Perry, in all honesty, to it, you know, it's sort of a it's a mixed bag because I've I've I went through some horrific experiences, totally jerky people that were just hmm. you know, as I tell my students, if you run into someone like that, just lose them, just right. lose them as fast as you can. Right, right. And I used to personalize things until I realized that. I didn't have to because what I realized is that someone was a jerk to me and they were going to be a jerk to other people as well. And it was their problem, not mine. Because I used to think, oh my God, they're right. You know, and so I try to tell young women, I say, like, don't buy it. Just don't buy it. Because this, this, someone's that way, you know, because what I have come to realize is that the men in my life, and there have been so many that have also really supported me, if they are secure in who they are and they're great musicians, they're going to welcome me into the fold. 100%. And yeah. Many guys get it. Many guys recognize that maybe I was a little bit behind the eight ball for some years. And they've, and so many men have actually gone out of their way to try to be more welcoming and to sort hmm. of compensate for some of the jerks out there. Well, you know, to that I, think point, it's a, I think it's a mixed bag. And I hope it's getting better for women. Every now and then I'll have a young conservatory student who goes – to a jam session and has just a horrible experience and I'll think, oh my God, yeah. I, I thought that that like went out of style, but you know, change is hard. And I think that the jazz community can't evolve necessarily any faster than our culture at large. We like to think that we're this really evolved community of musicians and it ain't always so, you know, so well, it's yeah, really I, I agree with you on that 100%. You know, I ran a jam session out here in New York for four years, and we were kind of having to fight against some of the patriarchy that still exists in our society overall and definitely within the jazz scene. And I guess my sort of last question to you on this is, you know, for, for young women and men that really want to be on the right side of that progress, you know, what, would, what advice do you have and what would you like to see happening more today in jazz guitar that's that's maybe not well firstly i that's a great uh that's a great question it's funny because i just had a young student who finished uh with me at the at the conservatory and he is now moving on i don't know if he's going to end up in new york i encouraged him to go there he's very talented but um he asked me he said he because he had a friend uh, a woman bass player that had had this bad experience and she finally ended up uh, calling me to talk about it and talk it through and uh, really kind of just horrible experience and um, and so he said, what can I do basically to be a good guy, you know, to be a, uh, to be an ally? And I said, you know, there's really two things that women, women musicians need, and it's going to sound paradoxical. One is to just be part of the guys, you know, just, just to be one of the guys to just be taken seriously as a, as a fellow musician. So just to be no special, mm -hmm. nothing special, just to be taken um, on our own for who we are with all of our warts and all mm -hmm. just like a guy mm -hmm. would be you know mm -hmm. so it's like you know this is the strength you have as a musician maybe this is a challenge an area to work on just as a guy would have and so we want nothing nothing special because of it and yet 
oftentimes in our culture, women, you know, I think many people are drawn to music um, ultimately because we're sensitive people. And uh, so it's not like I think men are impervious from having their feelings hurt. I just think that women in our culture sometimes, because of the way the culture is, don't have as much self-confidence. Mm -hmm. So a mm. man might run into someone who's a jerk who insults their playing and they, they take their guitar out later at home and they say, God, that guy was such a jerk. And they'll just practice and practice. But maybe for some young woman, it'll be so shattering that she won't be able to overcome it. And so I think uh, at the same, is it like sort of a paradoxical thing that I'm saying, but I think no, what needs sense. to happen is both men and women need to be conscious of the fact that women require almost a contradictory thing, which is that don't treat us any differently, and yet give us a little extra bolstering if, it's, if it seems valid. Like, if someone takes a burning solo at a jam session, don't just nod and go, yeah, man. Maybe say, wow, you're, that, that solo was burning. Right. And you don't know what that could do for someone. So that's sort of the thing. And then the other thing that I think men can do that are in a better position, young men than young women, is that if somebody is telling, like, gross you know, lurid, dirty jokes or making it in a sort of an inhospitable environment mm. to call them on it. Mm. And it's really hard. It's just mm. like for me as a white woman, if I'm around someone that is, you know, telling jokes that I feel are racist, I can pretend to not hear it or I can say, dude, that's not okay. Yeah. And I, but you have to be willing to put yourself out there. And I think for a lot of young men, look, as I was saying, we're all sensitive. That can be scary. To, yeah. con to confront someone. So you have to find ways of doing it that are diplomatic. Yeah. You know? I, it's, these are all great points. It's kind of like treat people with the same basic respect that you would want, you know, if you're a man, if you're thinking in, in, in that terms. But then also be sensitive to the situation. You know, try to read the, read the room a little bit and, you exactly. know, try to encourage a young woman who's in a challenging environment and maybe full of full of men <laughs> just to try right. to encourage them in right. that sense and then also stand up for what's right and not not let certain things kind of just fly over you that have been said that are not acceptable these are all really important things for us to remember as we move forward here and, and thank you for articulating that so clearly for us oh uh, so. well yeah also i can remember um you know i know different musicians uh, men that i have worked with when i've had trouble with someone i i think another thing i would recommend to young women is that it's sometimes easier for a guy to respond to another man than it is to a woman it, without them getting too defensive. Right, because, right. you know, no, most men, unless they're total jerks, they don't want to think of themselves as being jerks or being sexist or whatever. You know, it's yeah, just, yeah. I don't think that's, that's not what their intention was. So a lot of times it is completely unintentional. Hmm. And so, but I think another guy sometimes, and so I have often talked to friends of mine, a bass player, and say, you know, I'm having trouble with this drummer. He's been hitting on me. I, I'm really, this is really an uncomfortable experience for me. Hmm. And the, and then, you know, the, uh, the fellow musician will go to the guy and say, hey, you know, man, just tone it down a bit. You yeah, know? you got it. Just That's... bring it down a bit. And so I think that sometimes that can be a, um, that can be a good way to go too. You know, the bottom line is it's all about education, you know, and you don't want to shame somebody because like I said, I mean, some people are just jerks, but, but most people aren't. And it's, and it's, um, unintentional. Mm. Some people are just like, you know, oh, gosh, I never thought about that. Mimi. Wow. I never thought about that. They're, mm. they're not bad people. They're just unaware. Right. Right. It's really, really important, um, information to, to kind of soak in here for everybody listening. Mm. 
Today's podcast is sponsored by Education Through Music Los Angeles. ETMLA partners with under-resourced schools to provide music as a core subject for all children and utilizes music education as a catalyst to improve academic achievement, motivation for school, and self-confidence. ETMLA believes that every child deserves access to high-quality music education taught by qualified and well-trained music teachers. Music can support learning in other key subjects, including math, science, and language arts. ETMLA was founded by their executive director, Victoria Lanier. She has incredible experience in music education, and she's a brilliant violin teacher. We know these folks. We know this organization. They're great people, and they're a 5013C nonprofit. So for people out there who are in a position to donate, a position to give back, we hope you all consider our favorite music education program, Education Through Music Los Angeles. You can find them at etmla.org. Well, to sort of change subjects a little bit, I want to get back to some of the music. I want to talk a little bit about your uh, most recent CD, uh, This Bird Still Flies. Uh, First of all, I love it. I've been really happy to get into it and check it out. The acoustic guitar playing is on point, spot on. Um, Can we feature a track real quick? I wanted to play a little bit of, I think it's the second track, a little bit of your playing over Blue Bossa. Would that be all right? Sure, sure. Here we go. This bird still flies, definitely. Well, that's some great guitar playing, Mimi. Jeez, really, really phenomenal here. So I, I just want to pass it off to John. I know he has some questions he wants to ask you about, but yeah, that's that's a great, great track. So thank you for putting oh, that man, one out. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Barry. Yeah, Mimi, it's great to see you. And you know, you're not going to remember, but I met you when you came through Eugene, Oregon. Oh, this was probably 1998. I was. 12 or 13 uh mike denny brought you up there and or you would work with mike oh at the at the co at the university at u of o i was taking lessons from from mike i had just started jazz guitar lessons that summer 
after attending jazz camp. And he called, he called me up over in Bend where I grew up and was like, you got to get over the mountain and you got to come to Eugene next week because Mimi Fox is going to be here. She's a fantastic guitar player. And I was just getting, you know, I was a young guy, but I was so gung ho about jazz guitar. And, and I came to the, I came to the gig and we met just, just in passing. Well, that's so funny, John. Yeah, boy, that was, that was a while ago. I remember Mike and I remember coming up to Eugene a number of times over the years to do a workshop and then do a show in town. And, yeah. Uh, uh -huh. Oh gosh, that's so funny. That was 1998, which is crazy. But um, yeah, and you know, it's just a delight to have you on the High Action Podcast because you really exemplify the kind of guitar players that we love talking to, people who've had a, a really extensive career doing a variety of solo projects, sideman projects. I know it's interesting over the years, New West Guitar Group and yourself, we've kind of followed a uh, similar uh, grassroots tour trajectory and had guys like Ed Dunsavage, who I know was managed you for a long time, a good friend of ours. People like that kind of help us out along the way. And I'm just kind of curious what it was like to do those kinds of tours before the internet, like before you were able to promote it on Facebook and that kind of stuff. Um, because if you were coming up to Eugene in the nineties, you were certainly doing this around that time. And I imagine having guys like Ed or Mike maybe kind of help you out um, to promote the shows. But I'm, I'm always curious to talk about some of the players who are just a little bit generation ahead of the three of us. Cause of course we're kids. We grew up in the internet age, you know, right. You know, that's so funny. I, I honestly don't remember. I'm going to have to really think about that, John, because Ed wore so many hats for me for so long. I mean, we became friends. I met him when I was on tour, actually, when I was in Ashland. Mm -hmm. And Ed's a good player himself, as you know, and he was doing, he was actually playing at like a hotel in town or something. I don't know, the Mark Anthony. And I remember meeting him. And I remember when I, when I signed with Monarch Records, I realized, damn, I can't keep booking myself. I was doing too many things. I was teaching. I was touring as a side person and doing all kinds of stuff. And I remember calling Ed just because we had sort of become acquainted. And I knew he knew a lot of people. It was, you know, meet a lot of people in Ashland, a lot of famous people come into the town, different things. And I thought, gosh, he knows a lot of people. Maybe I'll ask Ed if he knows anyone that wants to manage me. So this was a fateful call for my friend Ed Dunsavage because <laughs> I called him and I said, Ed, do you know any manager or manager type people or, you know, I need a manager and I probably need a booking agent. I do this and that, but I really need a manager. I've got this new CD coming out. I can't handle the workload. I can't handle all this stuff and I'm not cut out for it. And he said, let me think about that. He calls me back five minutes later and he says, you know what I mean? I think I'd like to try managing you. I said, okay. And for 15 years, we worked together till I um, induced a nervous breakdown in, in my friend. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like Ed. Yeah. I, I know, I agree. Ed's attention to detail is so great. You know, when you book a show with him, you're in touch with him for the months leading up. And um, the venues that we've presented concerts with him in Southern Oregon, those beautiful wineries and the Siskiyou yeah. Institute. Yeah. He's also so well connected with the Brit Festival, which I'm an alumnus of. Around the time I was 12 or 13, I was going to those camps. Uh, so it's, it's great to talk about some of these people who've helped us along the way. I'm curious, you know, kind of post this period that we're in right now, is that some of the touring that you want to return to, or are you looking to maybe get back to some of the gigs that you said you were looking to book for your new project? Um, some of the stuff that was overseas and, and such. Yeah, I've gotten a little bit, um, more selective. I, I've, I've become a little bit of a pampered diva over the years, John. I, those types Absolutely. of road tours, um, I don't do too many of them. I did, the La Guitar was the closest to it, but I mean, we were playing, we were actually mostly flying. We sort of right. blanketed the East Coast. I remember I met Patty 
Petty Larkin and Khaki and Muriel out in um, D.C. I think our first gig, I don't know if you guys have played at the, the Barnes at Wolf Trap, but it's a, oh, it's a great venue. Great, great venue. venue. So we did a few nights there, and then we went up the East Coast, and then we eventually went to the Midwest and made our way out to California and the West Coast, so Seattle, Portland, Santa Cruz. You know, I'm more used to doing circuits where I can fly rather than actually going, you know, town to town. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm hoping a lot of the shows that I had, I had a, there's a promoter in Mexico that I've become friends with, and he had set up a ton of things for me. So I'm hoping that we'll just be able to right. come back to it next year. And stuff like the Monterey Jazz Festivals uh, have all said that they will book me next year. So, yeah. you know, that's a that's a good thing. Um, well, and I, I feel like it's not even that you're pampered. It, it's that you've earned it. I mean, you, sp you spent a lot of years doing that. And we talk about that in the New West Guitar Group. I mean, there were a lot of years that we... We just strung the tours together and got in our cars. I took my 97 Ford Escort through seven states and just about killed that car that summer. So my tour expenses equaled $800 that car. So we've all been there, <laughs> right. but you've, you've really earned it. And before I pass it to Will too, just speaking on the La Guitarra tour, um, I imagine that there was, even though you guys are performing solo um, mostly, I imagine there was some camaraderie you guys had on the road. And that's something that we love in New West as guitar players hanging out with other guitar players. And I've been such a huge Sharon Isbin fan for a long time, Muriel Anderson. I'm curious, was there anything that you learned hanging out with a couple other guitarists um, across some of the genres, in particular, maybe what you were practicing on the road? I've always noticed you have a very nice posture. The way that you play is, been, is very thought out. Of course, when we hang out with classical guitar players, we see how much thought they put into presenting themselves to the instrument. So I'm just curious if you picked up on anything like that while you were on the road with them. Yeah, um, actually, the the most important thing I learned is that all when you travel with other musicians is that everybody is is um, as neurotic as I am, <laughs> um, and that was really a relief. I remember having one show somewhere, and one of the artists was very upset with herself because she didn't feel like she had had the best night and there were some illustrious people there and I said I said wow you're being so hard on yourself you know it, it wasn't basically you know it wasn't that big a deal you know it's it's gone already and don't don't worry about it and she was like oh I because I remember seeing her in the morning when we were get, getting ready to catch a flight it's like how you doing and, oh I didn't sleep at all last night because I played so bad and and I thought oh I thought I was the only one, um, it, it, it's something, I'm actually writing a book about all this, but I call this the universal private hell of the musician, <laughs> Yeah, uh, which is that we all think that we're the only one that's suffering and feels like they may, they turned a form around, so they better jump off the Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah. Um, I came to experience it, and more and more, because, you know, I think you guys are lucky that you have each other, John, you know, that you're touring together and doing stuff, because it is so lonely on the road. And I'll tell you, you know, I can remember being in Japan and watching Bob Newhart in Japanese and thinking to myself, man, I, I'm just so lonely. And that's when you can get weird in your own head. It's like, oh, I had a bad night. And Russell Malone was in town. You know, I, was, I remember one time Russell Malone and I overlapped in Tokyo. And I thought, oh, I didn't play as well. But Russell loves my playing as a friend. And I just, I said to myself, Mimi, you're being, you must be going crazy. Something is going on with your brain. But if you if you have a, someone else to talk to, they can say, you know what, it wasn't so bad. If, you know, you, you you're being too hard on yourself. But if you're by yourself and you know you're watching Animal Planet at four in the morning and you have jet lag, <laughs> you know everything seems much worse. Yeah. Um, but no, on a serious note, John, I mean that that's all true too. But on a serious note, it was interesting for me that 
everybody had a different um, kind of a different approach, as you mentioned, to their holding of the guitar, how they approached it, what they did. And uh, yeah, I mean, I always try to learn from everybody. Yeah. I, I, everybody, I see every guitarist. Uh, um, I just I just watch what they're doing and and take it in and and uh, but ultimately you know we have everybody's different and we have to do what's best for us in terms of our posture and our playing to maintain our energy and uh, to keep, take care of our body as we get older. You know, I'm a, I'm a sure. complete, I'm a real uh, health nut fanatic and so um, you know probably at least as much of my time as I spend playing I spend. Uh, stretching, working out, biking, running, you know, swimming. I, you know, so I'm a fanatic because I feel like all of that stuff keeps me in really good mental. It's not, you know, I don't even necessarily do it for my body, although it's it helps, but I do it for the mental thing it gives me. Yeah. So true, so true, and this is such great insight that, to have you. And of course, I I could I could ask more, but I want to pass it on to to Will here, Mimi. Again, thank you for for taking the time to do the podcast with us. Oh, today. you bet, you bet, John. And nice to see you again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, wow, these guys have covered a lot of great points, and I mean, again, something I think New West and you has in common is just being on the road a lot. And I love you were talking about like, but I'm sure you'll agree with me. Being on the road, you know, can be lonely, but it's also really essential for like what you were saying in the beginning, reaching the the higher level of artistry because you need that total isolation and encapsulation in traveling with your music. Well, also, if you're playing every night, you're what I it's like a boxer. You're like you're in fighting trim. Yes, you're ready. You're ready to go. I, I'm. It's an ideal thing. I don't know if you guys have done this, but if you've been. If you come, if you're on the road and you're playing night after night, and then you go into the studio and record, oh yeah, wow, it's just Forget like it. it's a completely different experience. And you can you can practice in your room for 20 hours a day, right. and it's right. not going to replicate because there's a symbiotic thing with a live audience. And as you guys know, it's there's it's it's um, unfortunately because we're all living through it now, it right. is irreplaceable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. I I'm sure you feel the same way. Like when you're in town and you're doing your daily thing, maybe you're teaching the afternoon and then you do this and then you have a show. It's not the same as, well, I've been driving on this freeway for seven hours thinking about this show, thinking about last night's show. It's a special thing. So it is lonely, but it also is like essential, you know, and and beautiful in its own way. Yeah, I agree. Um, I loved your Joe Pass story. That's got to be one of the coolest Joe Pass stories I've ever heard. And yeah. Um, I can hear a lot, a lot of like, you know, like Perry said, continuing his tradition and, and you play a lot of hollow body arch top guitars um, and you have a couple signature models. It'd be really fun to talk about that a little bit. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I actually have only one signature model, but I like that you said a couple because I'm hoping that at some point someone's going to make me <laughs> a, a, a signature acoustic. I do have a signature hollow go. body with heritage. So the heritage and also um, Saperstein guitars, yes? Yes, although I actually, the Saperstein guitars were wonderful, but um, I found that they were a little too bulky for me, a little too big. So uh-huh. uh, I actually, Steve um, made me promise that, you know, he basically gave me the guitars and wanted me to have it, but he, and he did make one for me, but I, they're great guitars, but I needed, I, I just found that I was so wed to my heritage hollow bodies that I was using them more. I was too scared to take Steve's on the road. Sure. Uh, I think I did take it one year when I went to Ireland. Um, but as you know, the, the big art stuff, there's just different sound issues. Uh, I've, I've tried yeah. all kinds of different things with them and it's, you know, they're, they're kind of challenging. So. Sure. 
Yeah, so I'm not um, really, you know, I'm not really playing Steve's guitars anymore, though. He's a great guy, and I, I, you know, he makes beautiful guitars. Well, in that case, let's talk about the Heritage guitar. Like, did you ever dabble with any axes that were that were smaller or semi-hollow? Because again, like hearing your playing and the way, the way you play, I mean, you you really dig into the guitar, so the hollow body really complements that. Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, no, I've I because I started on an acoustic guitar, and I really think of myself. Um, as primarily an acoustic musician, and I mean that more just sort of sonically, that that's the sound that I dig. Um, I remember my, when I was about 12, I started playing guitar when I was 10, and when I was 12, my dad got me a Sears Silvertone guitar. It had a little wah-wah pedal, and uh -huh. I remember for about two days, I loved this wah-wah pedal, and I was going crazy with it, and then I put it in the box and never used it again. And so for me, I just like the sound of a, you know, just a really pure guitar sound. And every now and then some engineer, I'll be in a studio and an engineer just to sort of mess with me will like put a distortion thing on the guitar. I'll say, let's listen back to that solo, baby. And I'll put all this cranking up uh -oh. to all this weird stuff. Yeah. So to me, I just like a real natural sound. So like a, a semi-hollow, like the, the equivalent of the, the 335 or whatever. Mm -hmm. They're, um, they just don't feel like a guitar to me. It feels like I'm playing a piece of cardboard or something. Right. You know, even though I can understand the, the you know, hell, I can understand a telly or, or a strat. You know, I can understand why people, you know, Ted Green, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, so some people really like that kind of thing, and that's cool. Mazel tough. I got no judgment. But for me, I like, a, I like the wood. I like a real guitar. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like this visceral, physical experience for me. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So the name of the podcast is High Action. So we have to ask, <laughs> how high is your action? My action gets lower and lower each ah. year. Um, unbeknownst to me, but when I bring it to my guitar guy, he's like, well, one time he said to me, Mimi, you have to have some tension on, you know, there's got to be some space between it. But I mean, for many years, I had an old 12 string that I got uh -huh. at a yard sale for like 50 bucks. And the action was like five, I mean, the strings wow. were like 500 feet from the fretboard. But I still, you know, I still worked on it and it still, I still played on it. So I, for many years, I just, you know, I think I have very strong fingers from all my years. You guys know this from all the years of playing. And so, I, you know, it didn't matter what the action was. I would just sit down and play. But now, um, now I think my action has gotten lower. I mean, it's not like a rock player, you know, and I, mm -hmm. I still have 12s and 13s on my strings on my guitar. So, um, but it has gotten, it has gotten a little lower over the years and my tail my acoustics my tailor my uh six string and then the baritone tailor that i have i think the action is pretty is sort of medium ish on those mm -hmm. you know it's hard to say I, I you know i don't have one of those measuring things so i don't know where they're at but but the, <laughs> so you know. medium low nice yeah, I, I had yeah. to ask yeah i i was listening to your standards album from 2001 i believe uh solo guitar and it's it's beautiful i I'd love to get your your insight on on solo guitar, which is something that we all spend time tackling. Maybe more so lately. Have you been working on any any new solo guitar things? Uh, I always okay, have. You too. know, I have my home studio. I have Pro Tools, and um, so I'm always recording different solo things that just that I have. You know, if I get a new idea for something. Um, oh, I have a nice. Um, uh, you know, maybe I'll have it on an album someday. I've worked on, up a pretty cool uh, solo uh, arrangement on Seven Steps to Heaven. Oh, and cool. So, um, I'm. I'm trying to, I'm debating if I might switch keys so I have uh, an open string on it. I'm trying to, or I might tune my low E down. Anyway, so I have a new arrangement of that that I'm, that I'm working on. But yeah, I'm, I've always got new stuff and I'm always composing. I just try to stay really, um, you know, especially through these times, 
I could spend 12 hours a day watching Star Trek or I could <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. You know, that actually transitions into uh, the last thing I kind of wanted to ask you about. I was sort of hoping to wrap this up with a, a beautiful uh, track that you've recorded on, an, on your album Standards Old and New from 2013. And it kind of gets into an arena that I wanted to talk to you about. I grew up in a house where folk music was really important. It was the music that my parents loved and my dad played folk guitar and and that's always been like sacred. Hippie, hippie. Yeah, Bay Area hippie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I never considered myself a hippie, even though I, I grew up hearing the folk music too, but I consider myself more a beatnik. Beatnik, yeah. right, okay. Beatnik, Different generations. Right. So if, you guys, if we, we do a show together sometime, I'm going to insist that all you guys have little soul patches or goatees. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, yeah. John, you go first. Yeah, yeah John, I'd love to see that. I can work I'd, on I, that. I would look terrifying, for <laughs> sure. No, you would not. You would not. <laughs> but, you know, I... I haven't met a lot of jazz guitarists outside of, of course, John Story here, um, who have this sort of foundation of folk music or have this love for folk music. And I feel like I'm projecting, but maybe you feel that as well. And you have this beautiful recording of Blowing in the Wind that I wanted to, to play, uh, the great uh, Bob Dylan song. But I know on your bio, you said you shared the stage with Peter, Paul, and Mary. So Actually, uh, yeah, I played with um, Peter Yarrow. Peter Yarrow, uh, right. Of Peter, yeah. Paul, and Mary. And it's a, it's a long story. It's too long to go into now okay. how I met him. But he was actually a, at a show of mine. And I didn't know who he was. I mean, of course, he's much older now. You know, he's like yeah. 80 years old now. And yeah. so I didn't recognize him. But um, I was, again, I was signing CDs after a show. Okay. And this was in Mexico, actually. Oh, and wow. this was, I don't know, about two or three years ago. I kept looking at him, though, and he was really nice. And But I just thought, you know, and he had a beard and he was old guy, 80. And I just thought, well, he could be like my grandfather. He looked like kind of a, um, you know, sort of an old... I can say this because I'm Jewish, an old Jewish guy that I might run into at a Passover Seder or something, right, you know. Right, right. So we're talking, and I say, and I finally look at him, and he said, will you sign it? And I said, of course I will. I said, what's your name? And he says, Peter. And I said, okay. And I continued to look at him, and I said, do I know you? And he sort of shrugs his shoulders and said, well, I don't know. You know, you might. And I said, well... <laughs> did I meet you somewhere? I said, you look awfully familiar, but I, but I can't place it. And he said, well, my name is Peter, Peter Yarrow. And I said, oh my God, Peter Yarrow, Peter, Paul and Mary. Anyway, he had a gig the next night. And so he asked me, we actually got together and we rehearsed and he, we did Blowing in the Wind, Puff the Magic Dragon. Uh, and uh, what was the other one? Uh, oh, Freight Train. And when we did Freight Train, I had this version that I played when I was with live guitar where I'd start off with the Elizabeth Cotton kind of thing, da, 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 you know, the finger-picking thing. And then I go into a, I, I double-time it and go into a fast bebop thing, which because oh. the changes yeah. totally lend themselves. It's totally easy. God love him. Uh, Peter hung. He totally hung with it, with Freight Train, with us doing that. And then he came back in at the end and on, oh, on Blown on the Wind, I had him do it as like a samba. Nice. So here's this old folk singer. I was just like, well, we can do it. Because he's got arthritis now. And I said, Peter, you don't have to play. I can, I can, yeah. I, I don't know how to say this to you, but I might, I might know your music better than you do. I, I said, this is how I, I learned, you know, I heard these songs when I was a little girl. Yeah. And so anyway, he, um, he was like, okay, well, my hands have been hurting me anyway. So I said, okay. 
And so we did it as like a samba, and God loved it. He sang it as like a samba, and he's like sort of getting into the groove yeah. of it. So it was an unbelievable experience. And sounds like it. We had we had just a a wonderful uh, connection. So that was that's how that that's how that came about. Cool. See, this is what's going to happen to you guys. The older that you get, the more stories, and then someday the generation after you is going to be saying, "So John, Will, Perry, tell yeah. me about this." <laughs> and and we what were. Was it like, <laughs> what was it like talking to Mimi Fox? I heard she's kind of a character. <laughs> and, and we'll have a whole podcast to refer them to. It'll be amazing. That's yeah, true. Let it's me true. let me play this beautiful track. This is a snippet of um, "Blown in the Wind" from your album "Standards Old and New" from 2013. Let me just play this really quickly for us. This is just a beautiful passage here. Thank you so much for that and for making time for us on the High Action Podcast. It's just a pleasure. It's really special for me having met you darn near 20 years ago or whatever it was. So uh, I, I know you're also coming to us during kind of a crazy time for you this week. There's a lot of fires in California, so I hope you stay safe out there. And um, hopefully, maybe in 2021, when we're on the path to a brighter future, we'll be able to connect with you in real life at a show or seeing you perform or on the road somewhere. So that would be really I terrific. So. It's, it's been my pleasure, Perry and, and John, Will. Um, you know, great to, great to connect with you guys. And uh, you guys stay safe and healthy out there too. Yes, yes. And for people who are listening, go check out Mimi's albums. A lot of great stuff on Origin. Uh, you can find her stuff on her website as well, MimiFoxGuitar.com all kinds of updates and news and teaching things and anyway thank you so much for being here uh we're huge fans of yours and uh be well thanks again for joining us for another exciting edition of high action we'd like to take this moment to thank our sponsors for making this podcast possible especially those who follow us on patreon if you'd like to join us, visit us at www.patreon.com slash Group. There you can subscribe monthly to our Patreon page and get exclusive content from today's podcast.
Lastly, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts for all the future episodes. Once again, I'm John Story with New West Guitar Group, and thanks for joining us on High Action.